Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours, and I am joined by my co-host. Now, Craig Siegel is known as Luke Gehrig because Wally Pip is missing for eye surgery today. He's out, Blaine Bartlett. Now, Luke Gehrig, he may be here for the next 10 years because he's such a great guest and co-host with me. And we are blessed, my friend. We are here with an extraordinary woman again, uh, Dr. Jennifer Heiss. Welcome to Office Hours. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I have to tell you something a lot of people don't know about me, including Craig Siegel, the Eagle. My minor in college was kinesiology. Really? And yeah. How about that? And I tell people all the time, I went to college and law school, business school, and one of the most valuable classes that I utilize for my life is kinesiology, far more than trust in estates or civil procedure, for sure. Um, and you are the director of the NeuroFit Lab, uh, which is in the Department of Kinesiology as an associate professor. But your new novel has truly uh, it has great interest for me. It's Move the Body, Heal the Mind. And the reason it's so um, intriguing to me is that I'm writing a book currently called Reconciliation. And I think people have a very difficult time reconciling the body and the mind. And I do make a distinction in what I'm researching and writing right now between the mind and the brain, because the brain is actually part of the body and the mind is different. Mm -hmm. And so for you, I love movement. I study Einstein and uh, all types of quantum physics, metaphysics and physics itself. Uh, I want to get at a higher level um, mm -hmm. kind of what the, no the novel focuses in on when you're talking about moving the body and healing the mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love this idea of reconciliation because I think that uh, a huge part of the struggle for a lot of people is that they have these negative connotations about what exercise is. And it seems like it's punishment for the body and people don't want to do it. And so when we, when we reconceptualize it for healing the mind, we move in a very different way right? It's about some is better than none. Consistency is key. You're putting in the time. It doesn't necessarily mean you're putting in the intensity and you're doing it for a completely different purpose. The great thing about exercising for mental health is you get the benefits right away. You don't have to wait for months to, for the weight to come off or the muscles to build. It happens immediately. You get a reduction in anxiety, a boost in mood, you sleep better, and overall you perform better. You can produce better, better output, better efficiency with your work. It's a win-win for sure. Yeah, this is great. And I just, if I can interject for a second, Dr. Ice, like it, it's so funny because most people, they don't realize that there, there's actually, it's scientifically proven that physical energy and fitness enhances your mood. A lot of people just think it's for confidence and so forth. But the truth of the matter is, is it's a dynamic duo. It actually helps you perform better. And it's a psychological advantage because look good, feel good, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's biochemical changes that happen in the brain. One of them is norepinephrine uh, infuses the prefrontal cortex to help you focus and be more creative. But then there's also uh, anti-inflammatory effects that exercise has that actually help reduce depression. And this can have a clinically meaningful, meaningful effect that's on par with antidepressant drugs. When we talk about, you know, healing the brain, I always say that we uh, are counterintuitive when it comes to our health. 
Uh, we think we have to get more healthy. We think, you know, we have to do all these things where uh, the shift in my perspective and paradigm has been, wait a second, my normal status is ease. Mm-hmm. What am I doing to put myself at this ease? And to that measure, we talked about the mind and the brain. The brain is the muscle that controls the mind and the brain is a muscle and we can strengthen that muscle. And if we utilize the correct exercises or movement and correct recovery and access that we can actually strengthen the brain, heal the mind, and it can have some long-term effects, including longevity, uh, including, uh, you know, uh, resisting Alzheimer's or, or other types of dis-ease that is created. How do people, uh, in your opinion, make a mistake of trying to get something they already have instead of reduce the interference of their natural status? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Exercise can actually grow newborn brain cells within the hippocampus, which is a brain region devastated by Alzheimer's disease. And so this keeps our brain healthy. It keeps our memory high. But you're right. We often think about, you know, we want results now. And so the way to get those is to go big or go home. But that's not necessarily the right approach. And this is because exercise is a stressor. And nobody really wants any more stress in their life, right? Especially at that high intensity. And so we need to ease into it. And a lot of the amazing biochemical changes in the brain can happen with just light to moderate exercise. One really cool factor called neuropeptide Y is a resiliency factor that protects the brain against trauma. And this can be elevated by just light movement. So you don't have to go all out to get the real benefits of, of exercise. And to your point, it can be easy. It doesn't have to add any more stress to your life. It can, it can be seamlessly integrated in a way that makes you feel good. This is great. Dr. Rice, I have to ask you a question a little bit selfishly, but also just to give some context to the audience, just how badass you really are. Is it true uh, that you trained for an Ironman which got canceled due to the pandemic, but you created one yourself and ran it anyway. This is true. That's awesome. That's awesome. It, 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 and it was pretty badass. <laughs> I'm well, not Siegel, sure I could do it again. <laughs> that's all you, Siegel's wow. a badass too. Siegel, just so everybody knows, my man who, who I mentor, uh, he had found, I believe, a tumor on his foot. Is this correct, Greg? And right. dur- during the pit, and he was uh, preparing for his first, uh, was it Boston Marathon? Sh- Chicago. Chicago Marathon. And he uh, set in his mind that he would heal in time to uh, go ahead without the training uh, after the surgery and making sure he healed correctly, that he would run that marathon. And he did. And uh, I was, uh, well, just astounded, just like I am of you. He's he's a badass. But go ahead, Craig. Uh, I know you have a question there. Yeah, thank you for that acknowledgement. And it's true. And I'm so curious because you obviously are into the physicality and the fitness stuff because you understand it. it's your life's work, what it does to the brain and so forth. But there's a big difference between going for a three-mile run and running an Ironman. 
what do you find so special and exciting about running those big longer distances? Because for me personally with the marathons, I'm just so captivated how it's such a metaphor for life. I'm curious to hear your thought process. Yeah, it becomes so much more mental than physical, these long endurance races. And you need so much resiliency to see it through all the way to the end, as you know. And at, at many different checkpoints, you're you're challenged, you're checking yourself. Can I continue? Can I go? And you you keep going and you keep seeing it through. And it is a metaphor for life. Life's hard. These races are hard. You know, there's going to be ups and downs as there are in race, and and you just push through, and you you know, and you you realize you can do it. And I mean, that was the best gift that 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 Iron Man gave me was that you know I can I could do it, and and I could probably do anything. And that's like a mindset that's just so amazing. Now, now that's a paradigm shift. And what it does is it creates a new point of reference anytime adversity comes going forward for the rest of your life. You're like, wait a minute, I conquered an Ironman. I could do this. Yes. And to that measure, one of the most difficult things for me in my lifetime is I had uh, been exposed to and to tobacco since I was 14. And probably one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. I've never smoked one cigarette in my life. My dad... I, ironically, my dad smoked three packs of cigarettes a day and lived on candy. And he had an energetic and genetic inheritance that was blessed to live to 80, which I don't know how he did. But more importantly, we do have energetic and genetic inheritances that uh, give us exposure to certain addictions. And I was super surprised, I hope you're comfortable speaking about it, that you actually smoked. And <laughs> I, it made me feel better that I wasn't the only idiot that... Uh, utilize nicotine in whatever format it was. Um, but I found that exercising um, helped me. I, mm -hmm. Actually, two things helped me, not to illuminate too much, but what motivated me initially to get started, nothing ever worked for me, was my wife finally said to me, David, someday you won't be able to talk and uh, I'm going to talk for you. And so that was the initial fear that motivated me. <laughs> I did not want my wife. Oh, this is what David thinks. Um, <laughs> and that terrified me. But what really helped me quit was movement or exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, was movement or exercise uh, helpful to you to quit smoking? Yeah. And, oh, you, how does oh, that yeah. lead to the energetic and genetic inheritance for other people that may have addictions as well? Yeah. Yeah. So you and me are the same. My, my dad was a smoker as well. And I think, you know, we, we idolize these men in our life and, and uh, for better or worse. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it was extremely difficult for me to quit as, as anybody who smoked knows. Um, and it was movement that helped and it gave me an outlet and it, it, it healed my mind. And so the research is really fantastic on its effects for addiction recovery. And when, when we become addicted to a substance, what happens is that it hijacks the reward system of the brain. So compared to naturally rewarding things in life, drugs of abuse, like super jack dopamine in the brain, and it, it essentially hijacks the reward system. And the reward system was never designed to tolerate that. And so it goes into like this lockdown mode where it shuts, it essentially shuts down to all pleasures in life except the drug. And so the, the amazing thing about exercise is that it helps 
reopen the reward system, replenish the dopamine reward, uh, the receptors so that you can feel good again, not just, you know, with the simple things in life. You don't need that reliance on the drug anymore. And this this happens especially with illicit drug use. So it's it's really, really a powerful benefit and I think should be part of any substance recovery program. Yeah. And just to be clear, you don't have to run Ironmans or marathons. No. <laughs> you did in the book. Um mm-hmm. just get, just getting around and getting some steps and moving mm-hmm. the body I will do wonders, correct? Yes, that's right. And the the really great thing is that you can do it with a group. So oftentimes when people are recovering, um, you have to switch your friend group, right? Like you originally, you know, that maybe the friends you used to associate with are not helpful anymore, healthy in your new way of life. And so this exercise friend group, you know, a a run club or a, a CrossFit community can help, you know, with that social aspect of recovery that can help really enhance your life and get you back on track. Awesome. Last question real quick. Um, I was saying about working out or exercising, you have to take the realization that the first five minutes suck. Um, and, you know, to understand that just be motivation and inspiration, how can we get people through the first five minutes? Because I've, you know, rarely been as excited to start a workout as I have been when I finished it. In fact, I can tell you of all the workouts that I've done, I've never finished and said, man, I wish I didn't do that. Uh, but many I've started and said, I wish I wasn't doing this. How can we get people to get through the first five minutes? Yeah. First of all, it's not your fault. It's the brain. We can blame the brain on this one. It's it's actually makes us lazy because it wants to conserve energy and it sees exercise as this extravagant expense that it doesn't want you to do. So to overcome that, some simple tricks, you know, get your stuff ready, you know, have your time blocked off, have your workouts already planned out. So you just have to like execute. And this like this means you have way more willpower left. You don't have to make any decisions on the fly to drain your willpower. You can just go and do it, execute. Other fun things you can do, listen to music. This helps to prime the reward system, start dopamine release, makes you feel good. Uh, Do it with some friends. My favorite, this is super fun. It's a swish and spit. So get some sugary drink. You swish it around in your mouth and you spit it out. You don't actually have to consume it. And this is enough to convince your lazy brain Energy is plenty, and it's okay to move. That's so cool. Dr. Jennifer Heiss, check her out at jenniferheiss.com. Extraordinary, realistic approach. Uh, and check out her novel, of course, Move the Body, Heal the Mind. Everyone lives at ease. Let's figure out what we're doing to interfere with it, with our dis-ease. Thank you so much. We'll have you back. You're a joy to have here. Congratulations. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Dr. Heiss. Yeah. Take care. All right. You're, you, you fit right in here, man. I was surprised. It's not, you got big shoes to fill with Blaine Bartlett. So let's bring on our next. Say again. We love a challenge. You got to love a challenge. And here we are. Speaking of a challenge, the incredible Mrs. Goldfarb's Unreal Deli. And, Hi, uh, David. Hey, Craig. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh, and uh, I want to congratulate you. Uh, I am. Uh, seeing this unreal deli uh launching everywhere well i live in southern california so yeah. uh mr siegel may not have seen it yet so not uh, yet <laughs> but 
all my favorites uh, are what the uh, American Deli has, and except for one thing, it's healthy, and I love it. So um, I'm going to start there. In starting, uh, you know, a business, the Unreal Deli business, obviously you're leveraging uh, the trends and the fads of being able to deliver great quality tastes, but also healthy and to be able to eat, you know, Rubens and other great things. It, Craig gets in New York all the time, but I get a, a plant-based dose of corned beef. It's exceptional. And uh, for you, what inspired you to go this route um, and adopt, you know, a plant-based diet and a plant-based business? Thanks, David. Yeah. So uh, I grew up eating everything. I, I learned this uh, kind of inconvenient acronym that the standard American diet stands for sad. And I only learned how sad it really was maybe six, seven years ago. I had one Facebook friend that shared one video of what was happening to these animals on these farms. And one day curiosity got the best of me. And I thought, this can't be as bad as I imagine it is. And Boy, was I wrong. Uh, I guess once you start watching something on Facebook, Facebook has decided you're now into that content. And so every now and then, I was I brave enough, I'd click on it. And some undercover investigations and some documentaries later, I approached my very meat and potatoes husband and said, we need to find another way. Um, once I, after my heart was broken from seeing the videos, I felt like I was almost hoodwinked into thinking that this was normal, healthy, humane, acceptable in the first place. And uh, I set out to chart a different path for my family and my young children at the time, painstakingly learning how to cook from the produce and grain sections of the grocery store uh, with no real culinary backgrounds. Little by little, the food got good and better, and every now and then something was quite excellent. And I realized at a certain point that I couldn't find a good deli sandwich to save my life. And I'm a nice Jewish girl from New York who loves her corned beef and pastrami and uh, turkey breast and you know roast beef and all of it. And uh, it's not out there. Uh, it's kind of like how there were Boca burgers around for 30 years, and then when Beyond came out, it was like there's a new ball game. So there are a few legacy brands like that, but. Uh, at the, when I had this inspiration to make some really delicious deli meat, it was no thought of making a business out of it. I just thought it would be for my own home kitchen and family. But when my very uh, unhappy in-laws tasted it, they were, they were unhappy that I was taking my family on this like vegan hippie crusade, constantly questioning me how the children were getting enough of this and that vitamin, oh, serious interrogations that what weren't happening on the old mac and cheese diet. Uh, when they tasted it, my in-laws, and they said, this is so delicious, you should make this into a business. My mother-in-law, the original Mrs. Goldfarb, said, you're Mrs. Goldfarb. I said, I am Mrs. Goldfarb. There's a ring to that. Maybe I will start. <laughs> About three and a half years ago. Could not ask for a better co-host today when we're talking about Delhi than the yeah. New York Jew himself, Craig Siegel. Nice. What's that smirk about? I get to turn the tables on you. Yeah, so so it's great to be joined by a fellow Jewish New Yorker. Um, and I'm just, I always love delis, but but also my girlfriend who just moved in um, came, had a similar experience as you did and a few years back. She decided to be a vegetarian uh, for the similar reasons that you mentioned. And I absolutely adore her and uh, I appreciate that. It does make it a little bit more challenging when we go out to dinner, for what to sure. order and so forth. For sure. um, but I'm curious. I know the audience probably is curious about this too. What yeah. is the difference between and which deli, which one do you focus on? The difference between vegetarian and vegan. 
So what is the difference between the two? Yes. So I at first just was going vegetarian. I did not want to be this extreme. In fact, I at first wanted to just buy like organic and grass fed. And once I started doing research there, I was like, yikes, it's all horrific. I was like, even these quote unquote happy farms. So sorry to be a buzzkill. I know we'll get more into the business side, but unfortunately that's the reality. And so I started off where I was just buying from here and there. Then I learned more and I said, all right, I'm just going to go vegetarian. And then unfortunately, I started seeing videos of what was happening on the dairy farms and hate to break it to anyone, but it's actually worse than the meat farms, if you can even imagine. I won't go into details, just leaving it at that. And so then I said, damn, meat's out, dairy's out, like, where, what are we going to eat? And so, uh, yeah, it was an inconvenient truth, essentially, uh, realizing that, you know, all sorts of animal agriculture is, you know, at the tremendous expense, you know, to, to cut the dollar, to give the you know, worst possible conditions in order to, to save a buck and make it mo most efficient. So, uh, yeah, it, it extended into like that kind of brought us into like all the way vegan, which I was not looking to be like this crazy hippie, you know, from the outset. Yeah, it, it, I could feel your passion. Dave, what were you going to say? I was going to say, you know, I have a lot of friends uh, that are vegan and it's amazing the health benefits that come along. And most of the people that are vegan, uh, are there because of, as you, you know, just yeah. educating and educating themselves. And uh, what kind of health results have you seen in yourself from, you know, eating your own food? <laughs> totally. So for, first and foremost, I did this for the animals. But after I was doing it for like, I'd say three to six months, my kid, the most noticeable thing was I had like a two and a three-year-old at the time and they would ke catch colds on like the preschool average of like every four to five weeks, we'd have like a full-blown cold. It could be a doctor visit, amoxicillin, whatever, the whole nine. And that was, that then moved to like quarterly. So they, and it wouldn't last as long and we weren't at the doctor's office. So I was like, wow, the kids are getting sick way less often. And I really feel like that's more the dairy even than the meat having cut that piece out. Cause dairy, like it's built to grow a, a tiny baby calf that's like less than a hundred pounds into a 600 pound animal in one year. So it's all about, uh, you know, causing, you know, tremendous growth, but also, um, what is the word? Uh, inflammation. Uh, so that's something that like you're very much more susceptible to get colds and all that when you have that you know, strong in you. And so many kids are drinking milk, eating mac and cheese and all that. So having cut that out, we saw immediate health benefits there. My husband and I both lost a couple of pounds. Everyone was started sleeping better and my skin got like better than ever. So after I started doing it, I was like, wow, there are so many benefits. It's like crazy. That's why people say like, uh, there are a couple of things in life that, you know, you're always going to find out about in the first two minutes because there are all these crazy benefits that come aside from the beautiful ethical component of it all. Yeah. And also it's very obvious how good your skin looks. I just want to say that. So there's that. What, what I find so awesome about your story is, and it's relatable to me because I recently reinvented myself from Wall Street to what I'm doing now with the personal Yes. Yeah. And, and what's so cool about you and exciting is that, you didn't necessarily start this for the money. You're just very passionate about it. And isn't it so interesting that when you find what you're very passionate about and you step into that alignment, all of a sudden a business begins to present itself. You're obviously doing really well. You just rolled out 40 new locations in Southern California. You are in Shark Tank and so forth. Now that it is a thriving business, what is the vision? The vision is to become a major international food company. Uh, we're just now starting to sell internationally. We've got our first order from Mexico. Tomorrow I'm on a call with Puerto Rico. We're going to get, you know, across the ocean soon enough. But um, 
international, big box. We want to be like the, the response to a really delicious sandwich, you know, from here on out. I mean, I know that no one ever wanted to hurt an animal to, to eat a delicious sandwich, to eat a delicious meal. And so we're just here showing that like, sub this instead, one for one, make it simple. And, uh, and people realize they can vote with their dollar and they can do good in the world by making these choices. So we're on a mission. You have a great yeah. energy. Oh, yeah, that's because she that's because she's eating her own her own stuff. So yeah. give you great energy. Um, but you can do you can do well by doing good, which is uh, Denny's uh, story. And but also um, just to finish up, I always joke around that you're lucky you have such uh, traction in Southern California because the bar is set so low when it comes to taste of deli. <laughs> you Quite a few New Yorkers have said to me, sure, you can get it into the delis out in LA. We're not going to get into New York, but we're proudly in Sarge's Deli. We're in Ben's Deli across Long Island. Sarge's Deli. Craig, Sarge's Deli. Who, what's Dave's favorite deli? Sarge's Deli. We were just there together about a month ago. Third, I'm order, I didn't know they had Unreal Deli at Sarge's. I'm going to get my half baked corned beef sandwich and my matzo ball soup at Sarge's Deli now. So if you're in New York, you can do the taste test right there. Um, real quick, last question. Um, yes. Family and business. You okay. know, I, I've been, you know, growing up in a, in a Jewish household with the ultimate Jewish mother, with brothers that are doctors, lawyers, and rabbis. Um, entrepreneurship yep. was, was not, you know, doctor, lawyer, failure in my family. But you really have received a lot of support from your family. Um, and, you know, as an entrepreneur, how important was that aspect? Because it's very rare uh, for especially a mom of three uh, to get so much support about building a business. And, uh, you know, was your family as supportive as I think it was? And how important was that to you? So, yeah, I mean, it goes back to my father, who was a longtime entrepreneur, which I feel like gave me a lot of the chutzpah to do any of this in the first place. And he actually stepped out of retirement and has been helping me pretty seriously. In fact, since the pandemic, he's on Zoom on a ton of sales calls and meetings. It's just great. I'm able to like as if I have him in the office. He's actually on the other side of the country in South Florida. So that's one familial piece that's like a huge support. Um my husband is a very serious uh, television editor. He's actually won three Emmys. He used to have the most exciting, uh, you know, work life in the family, and now it's certainly on me. Uh, so my husband acknowledges that, like, this is more, you know, precious. He helps the kids with homework. He's picking them up to and from school. Obviously, I have, you know, some help with my little one. But uh, but also, it's so important to me. Speaking of having a Jewish household and the rabbis, I keep Shabbat each week, which I feel like really grounds all of it. My kids know that I do not sit in this desk in this seat on that day, and that they have full access to me. And that even my mindset, I'm like in this place, like the business already is this major international food company. Like we've already made, everything's good for like this one day. And then Saturday night, we lock out of that. I get back to my emails, back in the grinds. Even on Sunday, I like to work a half a day just as a way to kick off the week to make it extra, you know, set, set my week up for success. But yeah, having that like Shabbat day, I would say really allows for like my family to feel like they have, like they, they really have my attention at least for one slice of the week there. I have one slice of a week and yeah. only activity you get paid for. There's no such thing as work, right, Craig? It's activity you get paid for, activity you don't. I vacation. I take Shabbat every day, uh, yeah. but especially on Saturdays. And uh, I love, I would say that if we told Jenny that we would do the interview, but she couldn't use her hands, 
I don't think she could get through here. Uh, so I, I love, I love, I love your energy. I love the way you use your hands. You're an incredible oh. interview, and congratulations! I'm gonna go not only here on the west coast of Costco and many other places to pick up yeah. my unre Unreal Deli, but next time I'm at Sarge's, you're gonna see a post by me. Love um, it. My Unreal corned beef and matzo ball soup at Sarge's Deli on 37th and Third. Oh right there so all right my friends thank you so, so much Doc. thank you david thank you, Bye, keep Later. up the great work unrealdeli.com check out your local locations you do not have to get fat and eat a corned beef sandwich now and nobody has to die <laughs> so when i talk about animals all right anyway alec is in the house i see him there in the green room he's waiting he's a tough act to follow with two wonderful women Alec Ford is the CEO of CareEUS, CareEUSDX.com. And, um, you know, once again, dealing with real problems. And uh, I always say the biggest, Alec, misuse of time is between problems and solutions. And uh, as you're dealing with immunocompromised patients uh, and we deal with the immune issues that exist today, obviously, um, it's so important uh, to help lessen the load of our hospitals. I think we had, what, nearly 3 million hospitalizations uh, due to uh, immune problems here in 2022 already. And your company obviously is easing uh, that pain. Uh, how have you been able, with your extensive background, uh, your mom must be proud of you, especially if she's Jewish. Um, <laughs> uh, she is how proud of you. How have you been able to look? Look? leverage all of that experience that you've had in genomics and pharmaceutical biotech. Uh, it's just incredible all the things you've been able to do in order to facilitate uh, a new type of breakthrough uh, to help fight infectious disease. Yeah, David, Craig, it's great to see you guys. We're so grateful to be a part of your fantastic program. Thank you for having us. Um, of course. There's, there's a couple hundred people at Carius today that are thinking about one thing. And the, the thing they're thinking about is the fact that every single minute, there are five people admitted to a hospital in the United States who have some degree of underlying immunosuppression. Most commonly, 90% of the time they have a cancer. So this is a person, think about this person. They've, they've gone through months, perhaps even in some cases, years of cancer treatment. This, one of the scariest things that can ever present itself to a family, any of us have been touched by, and all of us have been touched by cancer, right? So you already have this absolutely terrifying event for a family or a patient. And then on top of it, and because of the treatment or because of the cancer, you get an infection, you're admitted to the hospital, and there's this brand new threat to your life. And that's what these 200 people at Carius are thinking about every day. There's five every single minute in the United States that end up admitted to the hospital. Uh, the mortality rates are, um, are pretty scary in terms of how often... Uh, people with cancer succumb to an infection. A lot of people don't realize there's about 650,000 cancer deaths a year in the United States. Almost half, some believe more, almost half of those are due to infection. So forget about the underlying cancer for a moment. Almost half of those deaths in the United States every single year are due to infection. So we're really lucky to have uh, a couple hundred people at Carius every single day that are thinking about um, that challenge that that family is facing over and above the challenge they're facing with that cancer that they're trying to fight. 
Uh, and those infections represent a really dramatic interruption. There's actually a significant amount of literature that says if you stop a person's cancer treatment for even four weeks, it has a significant impact on their successful outcome of their cancer treatment. You can't stop attacking that cancer with all the new medicines we have available. Unfortunately, an infection can be a really dramatic interruption to their care. Uh, it can threaten their life, of course, as we discussed, but it can be a really frightening interruption in their care. Yeah, this is really deep stuff. And I just want to say thank you for doing your work. Um, you're right. Everyone's been affected by cancer in some capacity. My father now is battling cancer. Uh, I'm so sorry, Craig. Thank you, Alec. It's, it's no fun. I do what I could do to keep him upbeat and positive and so forth. I, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, it's, it's very well documented that you lost your sister to, to cancer nine years ago. I believe it was inflammatory. Um, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this. You obviously have a very strong why, um, and your work is winning awards. And I'm curious, is there a big correlation between your strong why and obviously the passion to do such unbelievable work that you're doing? Yeah, there's a couple of things, Craig. I really appreciate that question, and thanks for the shout-out to my sister. She was easily, by the way, the smartest one in the family, right? My mom would tell you that in a second, right? My brother and I just kind of limp along 10 steps behind, but she was... Alec, like, I, I know what it's like to be the low end of the gene pool, so I can empathize yes, with you. Yes, I got, the, <laughs> I, I got the cleanup in terms of genomic reference. So, um, yeah, she was an epidemiologist at the University of Texas, brilliant woman. But, and so I appreciate that question, Craig. For me, there's a couple pieces. You know, I started my career at 21 years of age with Pfizer, right? Great New York company. Um, I used to tell people who I worked for and they would say, oh, yeah, that faucet company, right? Because nobody even knew who Pfizer was, right? 30, unless they were in the Northeast 34, 35 years ago. Um, and that's when I started working in infectious disease. That was the beginning. Pfizer was one of the first companies that manufactured penicillin for Normandy. That's how they got in the drug business. And so uh, they've got a long history of anti-infectives. But for me, it was not only the passing of my sister uh, of inflammatory breast cancer, but it was my daughter. So imagine if I, my daughter now is 16, she's almost 5'10", she's driving a car, she has two jobs, she's doing great. But 14 or just over 14 years ago, we went through a year as a family where she was admitted to the hospital in Oakland, California, 10 times in nine months for infections. Now, during that journey, um, she got the wrong anti-infectives. She got the wrong diagnostics. She got the wrong treatment. She had multiple hospitalizations. We were terrified. We were brand new parents. We didn't know what to do. Um, I had been in the industry, so at least I knew some questions to ask and how to be an advocate for her and her care. But it was terrifying. And it was a perfect example of we have all sorts of amazing people in healthcare who are devoting themselves to patients, trying to do everything they can to save the lives of people. But those people, at least for infectious disease, the tools that they've been given fail. The tools that people use to diagnose infections, the tools that they use to figure out what antibiotics somebody should be taking, those tools fail over and over and over again, Craig, and they fail a bunch of different ways. They fail because people have to guess what kind of infection you have. So they use a, a test that tests for 10 different bugs that might infect you. They fail because people have to use three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine tests in a row before they can figure out why you're sick. They fail because people have to put you on antibiotics before they diagnose you because they know the diagnosis is going to be hard. So you might take three, four, five antibiotics, some of which threaten your major organs in your body. People lose their hearing. People lose their renal function. Um, 
and they, they fail because of the time required and how invasive they can be. Um, people who have bronchoscopy, I'm sure you guys know when somebody gets a really bad pneumonia, a lot of times they'll go in, they'll wash fluid through somebody's lung and they'll try to figure out what's causing that pneumonia. 35% of people who have that procedure have an adverse event. Of those 35 people, that adverse event just in costs on average is $15,000 per patient. So that means if you apply that cost across all the people who have that procedure, that's $5,000 just in adverse events. So you already have somebody with cancer. You're trying to figure out why they have a fever or they have an infection. You do a bronchoscopy and they have an adverse event, which may compromise their pulmonary function or their life. And you're adding all of this fear and panic to a family who's already been through two waves of fear and panic. Uh, so for me, Craig, it's super easy to be involved in something that has this much purpose around it. And I think all 200 of us consider ourselves really lucky. Yeah. And like all technology, we have accelerated advancement. Uh, one of the benefits and blessings that we saw during the pandemic is how quickly uh, we were able to utilize technology in order to figure things out. Um, you're in that business of figuring things out. You are in the technology side of it. Uh, one of the greatest things that I've been involved with is technology since 1992 and been blessed to watch how the acceleration of change has occurred and the exponentiality of that. Um, for what you're doing, how does the exponential acceleration of technology impact your diagnostic platform? And I imagine the capabilities that are coming six months, a year from now, you see things that nobody else will. What do we have to look forward to uh, with Carius uh, DX? Yeah, there's there's a couple pieces, Dave. Thank you for that question. There's a couple pieces. I think the first one is people don't realize genomics, right? Genetic technology, technologies that look at really uh, fascinating parts of the genome. They've only really arrived in medicine in the United States in cancer. Now they're used all sorts of genomic testing that takes place in cancer. They try to figure out where the mutations are in your genome what's going on in the tumor microenvironment, even now what's going on just at a single cellular level. So there's all these great genetic technologies to understand and better treat cancer. But that's other than there, maybe prenatal testing has benefited from genomics, but outside those two areas, reproductive medicine and cancer, genetics hasn't really arrived in medicine. We don't go to the doctor we don't go to the doctor and they do a genetic test and they find out, hey, wow, listen, you need to get a little bit more sleep or here's the better blood pressure medicine you should take or here's something else you should do to advance your health. So infectious disease hasn't benefited from genomics. This is just the beginning of it. I think we're going to see all sorts of advances. I think we'll see, you know, today carries tests for about 1600 different pathogens with a single blood draw. Someone takes a blood sample from a patient. They spin it down in the office with one of those centrifuges you've seen in a doctor's office. They stick it in a box, they send it to us, and 24 hours later, we tell them what's causing the infection. We tell them within 24 hours of receiving the sample. I think you're going to see all sorts of advances. I think you're going to see new applications of the technology to be able to monitor someone's response to the treatment of an antibiotic. So it's not just that I'm going to give them an antibiotic and hope they get better. I can actually watch that signal of that pathogen, that microbe that's causing the infection, I can actually watch it go down over time so I know they're gonna be better. 
I think that will be a significant advance. I think there'll be high risk populations that if you think about someone going through solid organ transplantation or cancer treatment, let's say stem like a child going through treatment for a blood cancer, a lot of times they'll get bone marrow transplant, stem cell treatment. Those people, those children are at extraordinary risk of infection. There are technology, we've had a couple data sets come out in uh, the last year or two. We've shown that with bacteria, we can diagnose the presence of an infection up to a week before someone's even symptomatic. And for serious fungal infections, which have mortality rates up, upwards of 80%, we can diagnose the presence of an infection three to four weeks before they have symptoms. So you take a high-risk population like that and an advanced genomic technology, now all of a sudden you can catch people before they get really, really sick. And you can have a significant impact, hopefully, on the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, this is awesome stuff. And I was going to say, Dave, you, Alec, you have so many amazing things going on. Uh, the carious test was just named Infectious Disease Testing Solution of the Year at the inaugural Biotech Breakthrough Awards. With all the cool science and tech stuff that's going on right now, what are you personally most excited about right now moving forward for the future? I, right now, our focus is uniquely on people with cancer. We know there's over 300,000 deaths a year due to infection among people with cancer. That needle has not been moved. That needle continues to be a real threat to the, to the uh, 600,000 total deaths a year with cancer. Someone has to move that needle, and that's where our team is focused. But it requires a couple things to happen. People need to see uh, evidence. They need to see publications and literature, and they need to see evidence. If you're a doctor, you make your decisions based on evidence. Luckily, we've had 70 peer-reviewed publications so far on the technology. We have a big one coming out later this year, and that is our largest prospective study in immunocompromised pneumonia. Most of these patients have cancer. We will compare the carious test to every single test that's used in combination over a six-day period and show how much better this test is, even than maybe nine tests combined. Uh, to identify the cause of infection so these cancer patients can be treated the right way and get back on their cancer treatment and get home. Yeah, so that's amazing. what we do whenever we get excited about the future, Craig. We just go back to the problem that exists today and remind ourselves that, that needle hasn't been moved and we got to get busy. That's where you guys come in. We love it. Thank you. Alec, although you may be the runt of the litter like I am, uh, I am sure your mom is extremely proud. The legacy that you're creating for you and your family and the impact that you're having on the millions uh, that yet haven't been diagnosed is extraordinary. Please everyone, if you need any information or are interested in Carius, check it out, CariusDX.com. The incredible Alec Ford, CEO of Carius. Thanks for joining us. Come back and visit. Keep up the great work. Thank, Thank you, Dave, Craig. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing work. I tell I tell my team all the time, uh, Craig, when they get all stressed out about stuff, I'm like, you realize what we do, nobody's going to die. <laughs> right? Well, imagine, imagine having that capability. You know, I, I blow an interview, with, you know, they'll forgive me afterwards. And they usually do like you do, Craig, when I mess up. But uh, we've got extraordinary guests so far. we got a big cleanup hitter coming on next, Karen Blackwell. She's the founder and CEO of Canda Chocolates, and that's CandaChocolates.com. And uh, we, how are you again, Karen? Nice to see you. 
Nice to see you. Nice to see you both. Uh, I'm coming off of this serious conversation, like you're saying, but it is. They're doing life-saving things and everything else, maybe not just so serious. So, yeah. Well, I'm pretty serious about chocolate, so I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've had plant-based corned beef, and this is a good one. So we're we're all over it. But really why I wanted to have you on, Karen, is that, you know, I wrote a book called Compassionate Capitalist capitalism and uh we talk about servant leadership uh challenging ourselves to live in the empty mile so many companies uh they go the extra mile every once in a while and then they use the extra mile every once in a while to justify all the bad things that they are doing uh but you yourself as an entrepreneur in the environmental justice and commitment to social change that you've given through your business you go the extra mile every day and that's the empty mile that we're looking for. And you're currently focused in Ghana. And uh, with your bean to bar chocolates, I was hoping you could kind of give us a little bit of a perspective on why it's so important to be a servant leader more than just a money making machine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, interesting. I'm just coming off of teaching a marketing class in which we went, a chapter of it was on, had some conscious, uh, conscious marketing as, as a part of it. Um, and I keep telling the students, I'm like, no, there's a difference between uh, corporate social responsibility and conscious marketing. And so conscious marketing, right? What's the importance of it? What's the importance of servant leadership? It, it's, for me, it's my why, right? It's my North Star. It's, um, I was in corporate America. I had a great job. I had a great paying job. That's very important to mention. Um, maybe made paying me more than I'm making now. I'll just say that for, for the short term. Um, so all that to say is like, I, I loved my job because I was serving patients that were living with diabetes, but I wanted to do more, right? What, what more, how can I have a greater impact? And so with servant leadership, it's like you're always asking yourself, and, and it's not about what your job is, right, or if you're the CEO or whatever it is, but it is about how can I serve others? How am I doing that? Um, and I take that from a quote from MLK, by the way, um, who speaks about it, and it shows up in other places. But yes, I, I decided that I wanted to go into servant leadership, so I decided to create my company. And, and with my company, it is based, right? So the whole I created it before I even had a product. And I said, I want to give 10% back to the community. This is, I'm going to find a product. I'm going to find what my purpose is. I'm going to find all of that, but I have to give back, you know, to the community. So Canada Chocolates is a function or a brand under Sage and Alms and Alms means to give to the poor. So uh, it really was about laying the foundation, making sure that it's woven into everything that I do. um, And really just trying to create that example for myself every day of what more can I do? This is awesome. As an entrepreneur and also in your previous career, you've worn so many hats. You've done so many cool things, philanthropy, social activist, uh, speaker, and all that. Uh, I'm curious, of all those things right now, what makes you feel most alive? Oh, what a good question. Um, I I will say I do love public speaking, uh, and I get a lot I of- I don't think going to say that. <laughs> I do like public speaking. I like speaking about things I care about. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but I did get a, I got this semester teaching helped me with that. Right. So I got my fix of standing up in front of the class, talking to students, engaging with them. um, And it was impactful. So again, I got to have servant leadership in the classroom. So that was helpful. So 
Yes, uh, I do like public speaking. I will also say the second part, though, is is the business um, in making an impact with Ghana. Um, I think I'll be more alive when I make a greater impact, right? So the more that I sell, the more my business grows, the more impact that I will have. So every day I'm excited about that, but I do have a secret passion about public speaking, being totally honest. When can we get excited for the book? Oh, my, a book? <laughs> I had not considered that, but maybe you never know what's in the future. Now it's considered. Right? You see. You never know. <laughs> planted, you never know. Seeds under trees we may never sit under. But I also want to talk about, as a servant leader, um, the idea of learning. And I find that all great leaders are intelligent followers and would love to know kind of your perspective on learning. I know you're a teacher and you're a leader. Um, but how important is your learning and what are you doing today as a lifelong learner, learner to be an intelligent follower? Yeah, that's also another uh, interesting question. I, first and foremost, I love being a lifelong learner. So that means applying, listening and, and taking in from anything and everywhere. Um, in the food space that I'm in right now, I spend a lot of time just learning about the food space, listening to podcasts, um, taking classes every morning. When I say classes, webinars, things like that, I sign up for literally everything. Um, there is no, there's no such thing as an expert that isn't learning, right? And so I know something, I know some things, but uh, I still think that I have to learn every day. And I'm, I'm taught that, right? So when I do enter into the college classroom and the students say, well, professor, did you consider this? And I'm like, mm, I didn't. So I'm, uh, that's that, that that check, that check of yourself and your and your ego to say you don't know everything and there's always something to learn. And so for me, it really just it revolves like around making the space for it. So I will share there's two things in the morning that I do before I take calls. Um, one of them involves a guilty pleasure of watching shows so that shows up anytime you hear me talk. Um, but I also have the learning time. And so in my learning time, it's that podcast, that webinar, anything to just keep myself above on my toes. And I'll just say this. Um, I was paying a lawyer. I'm a bootstrap business for, you know, getting my business trademark and, and all of that. And then I was like, wait, I could do this myself. And I go on and I learn and I read it. And then I started helping other business owners. So I say it for free, by the way. Um, so I say that to say, you can learn, you can always figure something out, like that anything that anyone is doing. I guess if you really wanted to take, you know, a rocket apart that's going all the way up to the moon, you probably could take that apart too if you applied yourself. That's what my thought is, right? They too read a book and became an expert. So you never know. Dave, she's on our frequency for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it's so true. Like in 2022, for the, for the audience listening, like there's nothing that you can't figure out if you're willing to apply yourself. YouTube, books, podcasts, the knowledge is out there. But the reason why I said frequency is because something that David always says that really stuck with me and it seems like you buy into it too is you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And uh, it's okay that we know stuff we don't even know. I What did I say earlier, Craig, um, with, with someone I was coaching, Oh, I, I know. I have to speak. This will be for your speaking career. I was coaching a pretty well-known speaker like Craig, and he went into a negotiation and he said, you know, I, I was uh, it was for a lot of money. So he said I was overselling myself. And I said, well, why didn't you call me beforehand? He said, well, I made the mistake of saying I'm ready for this. And uh -huh. I, I would say that's the time that I always call people when I feel 
that I know that, that I know it or I'm ready for it because there's always something that we don't know. And that radical humility plays a, a huge part on it. Just to finish up real quick, uh, because you have a growing brand that is a benefit corporation and has a higher purpose to it. I'd love for you just to share a little bit about your actual product so that people can go to Canada Chocolates and support you and to stageandalms.com uh, yeah. as well. But I'd love for you just to share a little bit about the passion you have in the actual products so that we can drive some traffic and drive some income so that you can help more people. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to share uh, what I will say, uh, Candid Chocolates, and I'm showing images of, of the actual chocolate bars here. Um, but Candid Chocolates, the, the most important part is that our chocolate is made in Ghana. So it's fair trade and it's non-GMO, but we are grown, processed, and packaged all in Ghana. Why is that important? So right now, the, the industry is $354 billion chocolate industry. The Ghana cocoa farmers are getting pennies from that. For me to do fair trade, it is still pennies. It's still not enough, so I need to do more. Um, all that to say is that when you have chocolate that is made in Ghana, which is unique to my brand as far as in the United States, then you give money to the cocoa farmers and to the employees in the manufacturing plant, in the plant and as well as to Ghana. So I'm helping Ghana in three different parts and three different areas. And so that's the most important part about the chocolate. I will also say that as a person that might be watching this, you care about, okay, that's nice, Karen, but what does the chocolate taste like? I will tell you that it should remind you of nostalgic ch chocolate without all the ingredients that aren't good for you, right? So we're talking six ingredients, we're talking cocoa, we're talking about sugar, and, and it depends on if it's milk chocolate or not, if we had a milk. All that to say, um, you will get that nostalgic feeling. And we went to Ghana because they're known for having the, the most creamy fruit forward. When I say fruit, I mean cocoa forward, cocoa in the entire world. And how do I know that? Because most of their cocoa goes to Belgium. And so if you've ever tasted Belgium chocolate, they are known for having amazing chocolate, but they don't make cocoa beans. So we still have a love for Belgium. Thank you for bringing this to the forefront, but their cocoa comes from Ghana. And so I wanted to bring that cocoa to you and the flavor of chocolate into the United States with Canada Chocolates. Bang. Hungry. <laughs> Me too, I was gonna say, you can do good and do well at the same time and eat well as well. So make sure you're following up your un real deli sandwich with a nice piece of yes. chocolate. Thank you so much. Check out Karen. She and hire her, by the way, as she is an amazing speaker. Karen Blackwell, founder and CEO of Chocolates, chocolates.com. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thanks for coming on. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, buddy. I know this is your first time, so I'm going to talk you through this portion it's takeaway of the day time. So taking these four extraordinary guests and what resonates with you, what lesson are we going to reposit in your library and what story are we going to tell about it? What resonates with you? What's your takeaway for the day? Um, I really liked, well, I liked all the, all the guests, if I'm being honest. Um, specifically, yeah, Dr. Heiss. <laughs> what was that? I said that'd be a change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Heist, the first guest. Um, it, it's so interesting because I think that it seems so simple that if you exercise more, you'll feel better. But but clearly, a lot of people aren't familiar with that piece of education or knowledge. Uh, obviously, we don't have to run Ironmans and marathons and so forth, but there's science behind it. 
Um, if you get up and you move around, you begin to feel better. It can remove anxiety, depression, and so forth. And even like you and her had a commonality, although you didn't smoke cigarettes, um, you both had a little bit of a uh, nicotine thing. And just by moving around a little bit more and, and choosing fitness and physical exercise, it helped remove that habit. Uh, I thought that was pretty groundbreaking stuff. Um, it, it's, it's not easy, but it's simple. That really struck a chord with me. I love that. And for me, what struck a chord is that, you know, my number one non-negotiable in life is health. I always say, if you're healthy, you get as many wishes as you want. I teach people to ask. I teach people to wish. I teach people to pray to a source, a God that's bigger than them, that loves them more than their mom. And what I found so fascinating as a takeaway is that this idea is coming to the forefront. And what do I mean by that? You know, we look at all four of our guests, extraordinary guests, and health is one of the primary attributes and capabilities of their business, right? Obviously, Dr. Heiss, that's obvious. Jenny, obvious in the, the healthy deli and what that, not only healthy for humans, but extremely healthy for animals as well. And then, of course, Carius and how that business is based off of saving lives and health and infectious diseases and the outcomes of 600,000 people dying. Um, and then finally, even in the chocolate business, what was the main beyond helping people? It was the health that we don't have all these extra ingredients that cause disease. Disease is cortisol. Ease is dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin and endorphins and that's what the show's about it's a dose of craig siegel and david Meltzer here on office hours my brother i will see you on the paradigm shift strange hours thank you for accommodating each of us uh, on saturday you have something at 7 30 i now have a playoff game for super miles who's kicking butt with the game-winning double yesterday and so i can't miss saturday baseball game so we'll be breaking it on at 1 30 p.m pacific time on saturday Paradigm Shift with Craig Siegel and David Meltzer. Catch us. We're on like episode 60-something, which is amazing for something that we do once a week. One of my best friends in the world, still trying to teach him to button his shirt, but if I was that <laughs> handsome, I'd take my shirt off. All right, my friend. Take care. Thank you for having me. Love you. Love you. I'll see you later. That's the incredible Siegel, the eagle. Always showing off the three chest hairs that he has. I love the man immensely. And I'm eating so many beautiful, handsome sandwiches every day for him so that I look my best when I'm with him. I feel great. I look great. I sound great because of Craig Siegel. Anyway, it's Office Hours here every day with you. Please join us. But remember, most importantly, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, Craig.